All right, let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much for tonight. We thank you for revelations, and we thank you for your truth. And I just ask that you give us your word, you give us your grace, and that anything of mine, just ask that you just let it fall on deaf ears, and, and all glory be yours in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so I was just, uh, this, this sermon came about in kind of an interesting way. Me and my wife just kind of decided that, you know, every night after the kids uh, until, it would go to bed until a set time, we would just come down here to the underground and we'd just, we'd be with the Lord. We, we'd, you know, either listen to work, music, we'd uh, read the word, whatever. And so the one time I opened it up, I actually opened it up to John 19. So that's where we're going to kind of be talking out of for most of it. John 19, 5 through 22. And so as I was reading, it was just an interesting um, point jumped out at me. So I'll read it and then we can just, and, and then we'll kick it off. So then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Then Jesus, the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the praetorium. And said to Jesus, Who, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Jesus answered, You have no power at all against me unless it, has, unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has a greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, and in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but, say, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And so as I was reading that, it just kind of jumped out at me 
a couple things, right? So the biggest thing that jumped out at me was that there was a judgment seat. There, there was a judgment seat to sit on. And, and I, I, the initial thing was like, well, what is it? You know, what's the pavement? Because that's what it says. It says the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. So I just kind of wanted to go through and, you know, and do some research into the pavement. Like, is, was that a special place that only, you know, was, or was it throughout, you know, Roman culture? And then the next one was that, to my recollection at that moment, and now since I have done research, and obviously my research isn't exhaustive, but to the, to the extent that I have done my research, this is the first place that someone declared Jesus king with him, in, with him present. So yeah, you have the prophet saying he has a kingdom. Yes, they mention kingdom. But throughout the Gospels, throughout the Gospels, they called him Christ, they called him teacher, they called him Lord, but never once did they call him king until this moment. And the first person to declare him king was a Gentile. And so, I just, and so not only that, not only does he call him king, he declares it three times. Two of those times, he declares it from the judgment seat. And so that led me to start researching the judgment seat. Like, what does the Bible say about the judgment seat? You know, and we all know you know, the verses of standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And then I, that led to more research of, you know, what, is it, what does it say in Revelation beyond it? And it talks about the great white throne judgment. And so there was just so much information being fed into my, my mind that I'm like, I got this sermon. And then I'm like, I can't give this in one sermon. And so I asked the Lord, I was like, how do I break this up? And he says, look at it this way. Look at it, judgment seat of earth, the judgment seat of heaven, and the judgment seat of eternity. And so that's how I'm breaking it down. So we're going to be talking about this passage right now as the judgment seat of earth. So what does the judgment seat, because the ruler of this age the ruler of earth, who's been given power, is Satan. So we're going to look at kind of like just this judgment seat on earth. And so to really understand kind of uh, like I wanted to uh, just understand this section and see if there was any like historical information about the judgment seat. And so uh, a pastor friend of mine suggested this author, William Barclay, and said, you know, you're welcome to borrow my book. And, uh, and when I read it in this section, I was like, oh, I got to get this. And so I just ended up getting the whole New Testament. But this, the book he gave me was obviously the book of John because he goes through every book of the Bible. 
And so as I started reading that section, he just kind of broke down, the, you, you know, historical characters, the historical time. And so I really wanted to understand. And so he, he focused on the, 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 the chief priests. He focused on the Jews of the crowd. He focused on Pilate. And then he focused on the soldiers and Jesus as well. So he focused on really everybody. But one of the, th the things that just kind of... Um, just kind of like shocked me, or, or interested me, I should say, is what he said about Pilate. Because, you, you know, for me at least personally, when I would read these stories, I didn't really... I didn't really put Pilate as a bad guy. Like, I didn't say, you know, to me when I read it, it wasn't like, oh, Pilate's a bad dude. It, to me, it was more like a guy stuck between a rock and a hard place. Bad decision. You're going to have a riot either way. You, you know, you, and while he didn't know the implications of crucifying Jesus, to him it was just a dude versus if he didn't crucify the innocent dude, he's got a riot on his hands. And so I was just like, so, so that, that was kind of where I stood with Pilate. But when I read William Barclay, he actually kind of gave a little background into like the relationship between Pilate and the Jews um, that kind of helps flesh out the, these interactions. And so I'm just, I'm going to read them, read it for you. So, so uh, Pilate is taken over, and so, but Pilate, but as governor, Pilate was a failure. He seemed to begin with a complete contempt and a complete lack of sympathy for the Jews. Three famous or infamous incidents marked his career. The first occurred on his first visit to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was not a capital of the province, its headquarters were at Caesarea, but the procurator paid many visits to Jerusalem, and when he did, he stayed in the old palace of the Herods in the west part of the city. When he came to Jerusalem, he always came with a detachment of soldiers. The soldiers had their standards, and on top of these standards, there was a little bust in metal of the reigning emperor. The emperor regarded as, was regarded as God, as a god, and to the Jew, that little bust on the standards was a graven image. All previous Roman governors, in deference to the religious scruples of the Jews, had removed that image before they entered the city. Pilate refused to do so. The Jews besought him to. Pilate was adamant. He would not pander to the superstitions of the Jews. He went back to Caesarea. The Jews followed him, and they dogged his steps for five days. They were humble but determined in their request. Finally, he told them to meet him in the amphitheater. He surrounded them with armed soldiers and informed them that if they did not stop their requests, they would be killed there and then. The Jews bared their necks and bade the soldiers strike. Not even Pilate could massacre defenseless men like that. He was beaten and compelled to agree that the images should thereafter be removed from the standards. That was how Pilate begun <laughs> as, as governor. And so this is the second incident. The Jerusalem water supply was inadequate. Pilate determined to build a new aqueduct. Where was the money to come from? He raided the temple treasury, which contained millions. It is very unlikely that Pilate took, the money, took money that was deposited for sacrifices 
and the temple service. Much more likely he took money which was entitled korban and which came from sources which made it impossible to use for sacred purposes. His aqueduct was much needed. It was a worthy and a great undertaking. The water supply would even be of great benefit to the temple, which needed much cleansing with its continual sacrifices. But the people resented it. They rioted and surged through the streets. Pilate mingled his soldiers with them in plain clothes with concealed weapons. At a given signal, they attacked the mob, and many of a Jew were clubbed and stabbed to death. Number two. Once again, Pilate was unpopular, and he was rendered liable to be reported to the emperor himself. Then the third incident turned out even worse for Pilate. As we have seen, when he was in Jerusalem, he stayed in the ancient palace of the Herods. He was certain he had certain shields made, and on them he had inscribed the name of Tiberius the emperor. These shields were what is known as votive shields. They were devoted to the honor and the memory of the emperor. Now the emperor was regarded as a god, so here was the name of a strange god inscribed and displayed for reverence in the holy city. The people were enraged. The greatest men, even his closest supporters, besought Pilate to remove them. He refused. The Jews reported the matter to Tiberius the emperor, the emperor of Rome, and he, or, he himself ordered Pilate to remove them. So that's how he started <laughs> his, his quote-unquote reign in Jerusalem with the Jews. Not the way you want to start. Within your first year or two, you're already being reported to the king, of, you know, the king on earth. And so, you know, it's important that when you go anywhere to understand the culture. You know, for him as a leader, he's going as a leader, you go and you know the culture. You learn the culture. You know, yes, you hold to your own standards, but you understand the culture. And he just didn't care. He didn't care. But what I also found interesting as I was reading through the rest of the book and, and, and in other books, Roman, the Romans took away all their providence's ability to sentence people to death. The only people that were allowed to sentence people to death were the Roman governors of the provinces. That's it. So, so you know, we look at it, right, and in... And, and, uh, they say in verse 7, right? We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Well, A, they can't stone him or they can't kill him because they don't have the right to do it. They would get in trouble. Secondly, the, reason, the, 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 the punishment for claiming you were the Son of God in Jewish culture was stoning. Crucifixion is a purely Roman punishment, save for the worst of the worst. And so I was just like, that, that's, that's pretty interesting. And so then I, I, you know, I researched the judgment seat and I found some stuff. It's not very much information 
on it, but like the pavement. Basically, most other places would have been sandy or, or cobblestone or whatever, but these actually had like tiled mosaics, like beautiful designs. I mean, they, I, I even like Googled uh, pavement or the Bema judgment seat or whatever of Rome, and they actually have some that just have like beautiful colored mosaics and tiles on it. So it was a place of beauty. And, and, and so they called it, you know, the word they called it was Bema, B-E-M-A. And it's a place of official decision. So it wasn't just, you know, a special Jerusalem place. It was wherever they, they placed a seat and that was wherever they, the Roman governors, dictated it. And so another thing that was interesting is that the word when it says um, when Pilate therefore heard the saying he brought Jesus out and in, in the Greek there's a verb when it says and sat down in the judgment seat there's actually a verb or a word that's, that is used is called kathirin and I probably butchered that and somebody's going to hate on me k-a-t-h I-R-E-I-N. And what's interesting, so the verb in, in translation can actually mean to you sit yourself or you sit someone else. So in this, in this place, he could have either sat Jesus in the judgment seat or he could have sat himself in the judgment seat. Both are very big implications. You know, if he sits Jesus down in the judgment seat, like that's, a, it's a throne. That's where the judgment is coming. That is where life and death is being given out. And then from there, if Jesus is in the seat, he is now turning to the Jews and regardless of whether it's sarcastic or not, or meant to incite them, he is proclaiming him king. He is proclaiming Jesus king. And they say, no, no, no. And he says, you want me to kill your king? So even there, he, that's incredibly meaningful. But if Pilate sits down in the judgment seat, he is technically all authority of the Roman Empire is embodied in this man. So the Roman Empire that has conquered the world, this man is sitting down in the judgment seat as a proclamation from Rome is claiming that this man is king. Huge implications when you, when you think about, yes, that's exactly who Jesus is. He is king. So just huge, huge implications. And he does it three times. Three times he declares him king. He says, behold, you're king. Shall I crucify your king? And then he gives a sign, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. You know, but it's also, he already had Jesus flogged and beaten 
at their behest and to try and satisfy the, the bloodlust of them. You know, these, they hated him so, so much. And so a Gentile proclaims Jesus King. That's power. That's power. But this is then what I found interesting, is that Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And this is in, this is in verse 15, John 19, 15. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. These are the leaders of the Jews saying, no, no, no. Our king is Caesar, which goes into direct contradiction of Deuteronomy. If you want to turn to Deuteronomy, chapter 17, 14, and 15. It says, when you come to the land which the Lord God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. I can guarantee you the chief priests knew that. They hated Jesus so much that they were willing to go directly against God again <laughs> and claim that a foreigner was their king. I mean, just the, the hatred of, of the Jews was immense. And, and so, when you look at it from the sense of the judgment seat of earth, this passage and the one I'm going to give you next encompasses everything that comes with the title judgment seat of earth. That's, this is what rules hatred. Hatred rules the judgment seat. Anger, fear, injustice. Because Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. But because injustice... Fear reigned in his heart. And if, you know, we remember going back to those three strikes that he'd already had in his rule. <laughs> like, he's being blackmailed too. They say, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. So they're saying, go ahead and do it. Guess who we'll report you to? We'll report you to Caesar again. And then it ain't going to end well for you. 
So now he's caught in between that rock and that hard place again. But even still in this, he's, he's hating on the Jews. He, does, he never understood them. But because he's fearful, he's fearful of the Jews and he's fearful of being reported to the emperor, he backs out. That's what rules. Oh, and by the way, very appropriate for the today's day and age, the mob rules. The mob rules from the judgment seat. I mean, you look at it on TV, can't, this cancel culture crap. You speak the truth and all of a sudden you're canceled. You speak a, a, a dissenting voice against the norm and you're canceled. That's mob rule. Here it is right here. Mob rule. Crucify him, crucify him. All of it, all of it is, is mob rule. And, 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 and to me, it's like, that's, it's, <laughs> I mean, it, and it brings me to the, like, another revelation I had. I was just, I was laying down, and I was taking a nap, and I was just like, Lord, you know, because he really doesn't let me nap, he more just lets me talk, and, and, and then gives me whiz-bang revelations, and then I don't sleep at all, and just think about it, so that's really fun, um, but, but he kind of, he gave it to me and you're going to be like, oh, well, well, yeah, duh. But, it, but to me it was like, whoa, the revelation he gave me was that I, I had asked the Lord, I said, why, you know, just thinking like the Bible has been around for a millennia and it is one of the most powerful books. It's one of the most banned books. Why, you know, and, and obviously I understand this, but why? Why is it so effective, so powerful today, written millennia ago? Uh, there are other books around from millennia ago, but none with the reach and the power that the Bible has. And yes, I understand before everybody gets all up in arms, I understand it's the word of God. The power of God makes it effective through the ages. But the one thing he said to me is that man and sin have never changed. Think about it. God, in his infinite wisdom, wrote this book addressing sin and addressing the need to be delivered from sin. In a millennia, in multiple millennia, we haven't evolved from the same thing that's been written in here. We still do the same stupid sins time and time again. Mob still rules. Still adultery. We're just more efficient at finding ways to do it. You know, instead of prostitutes on the corner now, there's prostitutes on your phone. There's photos on your phone. Nothing has changed. The sin has not changed. We have not, quote unquote, evolved beyond our sin. So 
The effectiveness of the Bible is that in God's infinite wisdom, knowing that man can't go beyond its own sin, wrote a book addressing every sin. I was like, whoa. But that's proven here. And that's proven if you look at, take a step back today and look at the culture in America. And I'm sure it's everywhere else too, but I live here in America. Cancel culture. Shutting down the truth. Pilate says in other books, he, I find him innocent. He knew he was innocent. But the mob doesn't care. Doesn't care if you're honest. Who you are. Shut you down. Crucify you. Crucify you. That's what rules from the judgment seat of earth. That's what it looks like to be judged by earth. Turn to Luke 18. Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. This is, this, is an in, this is one he led me to, right? Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me for my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God, nor regard man, yet because of this widow, because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, left, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord goes on to explain about justice. But right there, that's a judge. And, and I actually read more that section from William Barclay's book of Luke. And the judge in the parable is not referencing a Jewish, ju a Jewish tr judgment and trial because the Jews would have had three judges. They would have had one picked by the defense, one picked by the prosecution, and then an independent party. If there's only one judge, that was in reference to the Romans. Again, authority of life and death. But these judges that were always appointed were corrupt. Historically speaking, they were a joke. Because if you didn't have power and you didn't have money, the likelihood of you getting a verdict was almost non-existent. They called them robber judges. You know, and the Lord says, and shall, hear what the unjust said, and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith? 
on the earth. Jesus said there, it, no matter, if you are his son, if you are his son, God is going to get justice for you. Regardless of the speed with which it comes, God is going to get justice for you. But here on earth, you're not going to get the justice you want. The justice that you're searching for. You're going to get corruption. You're going to get lies. You're going to get hate. You're going to get fear. You're going to get the mob. That is what you're going to get from the judgment seat of earth. And what's interesting is when you look at the judgment seat of earth, you see the king of kings standing before the judgment seat of earth. The one who is going to judge the world stands before the judgment seat of earth. The verse says, you know, all authority has been given unto me. That means he can judge. So the one who will judge us stood before us being judged. And it says we had no case against him, but we still crucified him. But if you take a step back and you look, at, look again at John 19. And if you actually look at the whole, you know, the whole interaction between Jesus... Jesus and, and the high priest, Jesus and, and Pilate. Who's really on trial? Who's really on trial? Because I know if I was in Jesus' place, I'd, I'd be trembling. I'd be sweating. I'd be afraid to die, knowing I'm going to die, even though I have, I'm innocent. Jesus... Knowing who he is, knowing what authority he has, and knowing what authority the judgment seat of earth has, stands there. And it looks like, though, though this whole charade of a trial is going down, condemning him, he's not the one on trial. He's standing there like the king he is, like the king that Pilate declared. He's standing there listening to them. You know, I mean, for those of you that had siblings, like how often would you get in a fight and you'd, you'd be so quick to be like, I want to explain to mom and dad that I didn't do what I did with her. It was them, it was them, me, not them, them. You know? We were always so quick to defend ourselves. Jesus, having the judgment seat being leveled at him, says nothing. Nothing. And to me, that's where John, the John 16, verse 33, really brought home a nice punch. It said, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. 
Do you want the peace of Jesus? Yes, I do, because he exudes it at the trial of his life, his human life. You want heavenly peace? That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. Calm in the face of death. Calm in the face of lies. But this is what he says. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. A man who has overcome the world takes nothing. Defends himself not in front of the world. He doesn't have to. Jesus didn't even levy any accusations against them. Because he knows now is not my time to levy judgment. Because he could have, and with a snap of his fingers, <laughs> it had been bad news bears. He experienced it all. You know, everything that the justice of the judgment seat of earth had to offer. And it was nothing good. Nothing good. You know, and so that Luke, the Luke 18 passage where God says, you know, justice for you you know, how, how quick will God get the justice for you? And, and when we turn next, you know, next time I preach, we're going to look at the judgment seat of Christ himself. And you're going to see just the, the, the mind-blowing contrast between the judgment seat of earth and the judgment seat of heaven. And it's, it's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. The, the information that is here, the revelation that the Lord gives about what to expect. You know? I mean, I, th I think that, that revelation of, you know, sin and human hasn't changed is poignant to this point. Nothing's changed. It's not going to change. You, you know, it's had its change for two millennia to, to change. And now here we are. And it's still the same thing but now the judgment seat and I call it earth because it's all over that mob is digital now too not just in person it's digital but in the face of it and you've even seen it right you've even seen it sometimes the Lord's favor on people to bring justice you know he doesn't say he doesn't say in that, in that Luke passage that the, the widow was a Christian. He didn't say that. But that justice still was brought. You've seen the judgment seat of earth. You know, just for example, that Gina Carano. Where she, she, she stood up for her beliefs. 
You know, and other people have done it. They've stood up for their beliefs and the Twitter mob, the Facebook mob, the news, you know, families and friends have tried to destroy them. And in, in justice came in form of them not being canceled, them not being, you know, swept up by the mob, crucified by the mob. God's justice prevails. Regardless of Earth's form of wanting to dispense justice, God's justice will prevail. And so the next time you're facing the mob, the lies, the, the hate, the fear, really understand that right now, Jesus has overcome the world. And he exemplified it in this verse. I mean, that is heavenly peace. Heavenly peace. Heavenly peace before your death, before your sentencing. And it holds no effect on Jesus. I mean, the man was just beaten, scourged, which that's a whole nother sermon series in and of itself. Just the, the, the mess that that is. And, and for me, if I'd have gone through that, I'd have wanted to say anything to save my life. You know, because crucifixion was even worse than scourging. Crucifi yes, crucifixion was a sentence for death, but it was a moment of torture. The Romans perfected it to bring out the pain, to lengthen the pain. Crucifixion wasn't fast, supposed to be fast like it was for Jesus. Crucifixion was meant to last days and days and days. Knowing that, I probably would have said anything and leveled as many accusations as I could. Not Jesus. Because he knew who he was. So we should take that and understand and know who we are in Jesus. And that, that calm and that the justice of heaven can be ours. The peace of heaven can be ours if we just ask for it. Nothing, nothing good comes from the judgment seat of earth. but we'll see where good comes from in the next ones. So Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for your truth. We thank you that you have overcome the world and that we don't have to stand before the judgment seat of earth because its lies would be levied against us. The mob would be levied against us. Fear, anger, hatred, corruption would all be used to condemn us. But that's not your way, Lord. 
that has never been your way. You are one of justice that can't be bought with bribes. And so we thank you for the truth. We thank you for who you are. And I just thank you for not making me judge. Because in that seat, I probably in my sinful nature without you would have done the exact same thing. And I thank you that you changed me, washed me and remade me. And so I just ask that you put away those judgments, put away that old me, even further away as far as the east is from the west. And just grant me the peace that Jesus exuded at the judgment seat of earth. All glory and honor to your name, in Jesus' name, amen.